Welcome back to TanakhCast. This is episode 142. We'll begin the book of Micah with a brief summary of chapters 1 through 3 and follow with some thoughts about belief in God, tragedy, and contradiction. Micha the Morishtite lived in the second half of the 8th century BCE during the reign of Yotam, Ahaz, and Chizkiyahu. Yotam's reign was the quiet before the plunge, basking in the reflective glow of Yotam's father, the leprous Uziah, who sat at the helm of a stable and prosperous monarchy. Although there are twelve men named Micha in the Tanakh, including Michayahu ben Yamle, who was also a prophet, this Micha prophesies at the same time as Yeshayahu. But contrary to Yeshayahu, he didn't run with kings and courtiers and He pretty much stayed out of politics, although he couldn't avoid taking a position on the impending arrival of the armies of Assyria, whose empire was expanding into the Mediterranean littoral. Micha prophesied mostly in the southern kingdom of Judah with Yeshayahu, although Hoshea, who also prophesied at the time, primarily stuck to the northern kingdom of Israel. He echoed the social agenda of Amos, but took a more hawkish line against Assyria, calling for a strong, militant response to the foreign invaders. That being said, Micha opens chapter 1 with a pronouncement that I suppose could be taken literally, quote, The Lord is coming forth from his dwelling place. He will come down and stride upon the heights of the earth. Oh, damn! And God is coming to smack down the wicked, quote, So I will turn Samaria into a ruin in open country, into ground for planting vineyards. For I will tumble her stones into the valley and lay her foundations bare. All her sculptured images shall be smashed, all her harlot's wealth be burned, and I will make a waste heap of all of her idols, for they were amassed from fees for harlotry, and they shall become harlot's fees again." Judah, by the way, will not escape a similar fate. This prophecy has definite historical resonance as the Assyrians arrive in 720 BCE and actually destroy Samaria. And Sancheriv turns his attention to Judah in 701 BCE, laying waste to dozens of cities before stopping short at the walls of Jerusalem. Micha begins chapter 2 with an evocative image, the wicked laying in their beds plotting evil. Quote, when morning dawns, they do it, for they have the power. They covet fields and seize them, houses, and take them away. They defraud men of their homes and people of their land. These vindictive, powerful men, of course, won't change their ways. Why should they? Who can make them? What you want to do is destroy this guy's life, hold this seat open, and hope you win in 2020. You've said that. Not me. You've got nothing to apologize for. When you see Sotomayor and Kagan, tell them that Lindsay said hello, because I voted for them. I would never do to them what you've done to this guy. And these men wag their finger at Micha. Quote, stop preaching, they preach. That's no way to preach. Shame shall not overtake us. Then they tell Micha that all the dire warnings are just hysterical nonsense and all the things that might happen are not really what God wants or aligns with reality because in fact Judah is great again and Micha is just pushing fake news. So Micha takes a breath and says, you can think what you want about your behavior, but God will settle accounts when the time comes. 
and y'all will only hear what you want to hear anyway. Quote, if a man were to go about uttering windy, baseless falsehoods, I'll preach to you in favor of wine and liquor, he would be a preacher acceptable to that people. And then Micha proceeds to lay it out for the Jews. He uses the kind of imagery with which he is most familiar, the field and the herd. Quote, I will assemble Jacob, all of you. I will bring together the remnant of Israel. I will make them all like sheep of Bozrah, like a flock inside its pen. They will be noisy with people. One who makes a breach goes before them. They enlarge it to a gate and leave by it. Their king marches before them, the Lord at their head. But the meaning of this breach is unclear. Is it something to look forward to? The breach opening the way for the Jews to flee the exile and return to the land of Israel? Or is it the opening to that exile? It's, it's not really clear. Chapter 3 exposes the real culprit for all of Judah's woes, the corrupt leadership who, quote, have devoured my people's flesh. You have flayed the skin off them and their flesh off their bones. And after tearing their skins off them, and their flesh off their bones, and breaking their bones to bits, you have cut it up as into a pot, like meat in a cauldron. Oh, God, it's so good. Mmm, mmm, so good. And the prophets who lead the people astray, quote, who cry peace when they have something to chew, but launch a war on him who fails to fill their mouths. This theme of graft and corruption continues throughout the rest of the chapter, with lucre lubricating the machine of justice as well as governance. The end result, quote, because of you, Zion, shall be plowed as a field, and Jerusalem shall become heaps of ruins, and the Temple Mount a shrine in the woods. And on that disastrous note, here endeth the lesson. Of the many concepts that have emerged from our reading of the Tanakh so far, Hester Panim is not a new one. It's an evocative image. God hides his face, God is eclipsed, God is silent. God is inactive. God sits on his hands. God withdraws. Micha uses the phrase in chapter 3, verse 4, quote, Someday they shall cry out to the Lord, but he will not answer them. At that time, he will hide his face from them in accordance with the wrongs they have done. If we examine the Tanakh for this phrase, we find three kinds of hester panim, with the first, God says he will hide his face from the Jews, so it's hypothetical or a potential threat. As we find in Deuteronomy 31, when God warns the people that if they don't behave, quote, then my anger will flare up against them and I will abandon them and hide my countenance from them. They shall be ready prey, and many evils and troubles shall befall them, and they shall say on that day, surely it is because our God is not in our midst that these evils have befallen us. The second involves prophets who predict it, this Hester Panim, like Micha's contemporary Yeshayahu, who told the people in chapter 8, quote, So I will wait for the Lord, who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will trust in him. Or Yirmiyahu or Yechezkel, who made similar pronouncements. And in each case, the expression comes in connection with the people's behavior. It's not correlation, it's causation. 
We haven't experienced the third instance when God actually hides his face and the people call out for him to stop. And we'll read this in Psalms and the book of Job when individuals like the psalmist and Job, not the prophets, experience Hester Panim firsthand. But here's the glaring difference. They don't understand why. Psalm 44, quote, Rouse yourself. Why do you sleep, O Lord? Awaken. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face, ignoring our affliction and distress? Job chapter 13, quote, How many are my iniquities and sins? Advise me of my transgression and sin. Why do you hide your face and treat me like an enemy? Hiddenness, in these cases, is both active and passive. One hides, but by hiding, one removes oneself from the scene. In the mind of the Tanakh, God is imminent in history, intervening through miracle. And yet, at the same time, God withdraws. In a way, this makes theological sense. Pharaoh, for example, could defy God ten times. Why? Because God is absent, as he was during the centuries of slavery. In a sense, One could regard the concept of theodicy, the existence of evil in a world created by a just God, as squaring the circle of the eclipse of God. Should we be angry with God for leaving the scene and abandoning us? This reminds me of the sharpest Holocaust joke I know. A Jew gets to heaven after passing and meets God. The Jew tells God a whopper of a Holocaust joke, but God doesn't laugh. The Jew shrugs and says, eh, I guess it's one of those jokes where you had to be there. (laughs) But the Tanakh has an answer. We should weather the eclipse, and when God returns, lavish praise and appreciation on him. But we don't live in Tanakh times, and since the Tanakh's redaction, a lot of terrible stuff has happened to the Jewish people, especially in the 20th century. If God is absent, is it because God is compelled to be absent or by choice? Either option is not good for the believers in God to chew on and consider. A God who is compelled is not omnipotent. A God who chooses to abandon his people is just mean. Quite the contradiction. One could always go the Nietzsche route from gay science. Quote, The madman, have you not heard of that madman who lit a lantern in the bright morning hours, ran to the marketplace and cried incessantly, I seek God, I seek God. As many of those who do not believe in God were standing around just then, he provoked much laughter. Why did he get lost, said one? Did he lose his way like a child, said another? Or is he hiding? Is he afraid of us? Has he gone on a voyage or emigrated? Thus they yelled and laughed. The madman jumped into their midst and pierced them with his glances. Whither is God, he cried, I shall tell you. We have killed him, you and I. All of us are his murderers. But Jews have largely not gone down that path. Martin Buber, who is arguably the most influential and preeminent Jewish philosopher of the 20th century, wrote Eclipse of God, Studies in the Relation Between Religion and Philosophy. He wrote this in 1952. In this work, he confronts the enormity of the Holocaust in relation to our relationship with God. Hester Panim can invoke terrible contradictions, but there is also dynamism and optimism, because the eclipse eventually ends. The celestial bodies move out of position and light returns. Hiddenness is a temporary dynamic in the context of a relationship. So God is not hidden, God hides. There is a difference. One is a state of being, the other is an act, one that has yet to be completed. But why does God hide? 
Well, the Tanakh tells us time and again, it's because of the people's actions. It's our fault that the eclipse happens. Does Buber concur? In a sense, yes. Arguing that our age has operationalized God, treating God like an object as opposed to a dialogue partner. And if we can do that, we can definitely objectify people and murder them in vast numbers. This, however, is not just the fault of the Jews, but everyone. However, for Jews, processing this reality is particularly challenging. Quote, For one who believes in the living God, and who knows about him, and is fated to spend his life in a time of his hiddenness, it is very difficult to live. That is very much an understatement. Hester Panim is a topic very much for our age, and many have famously weighed in on this conversation. Philosopher Emil Fackenheim, the modern Orthodox thinkers Eliezer Berkowitz, Norman Lamb, Elie Wiesel, Jonathan Sachs, to name a few, or Abraham Joshua Heschel, but then the usually brief episodes you're used to would probably rival Dan Carlin's hardcorest of hardcore history if I went into all of them. But I will just share one thought of Heschel's, also optimistic, as God is hiding, hiding involves waiting. That is, God is waiting to emerge, hoping that humanity will beckon to him. Quote, it is not God who is obscure. It is man who conceals him. Hester Panim is not as much about God not caring about us, but of us not caring. And when we don't care, terrible things inevitably happen. If you like what you heard today, spread the word about TanakhCast. Send a friend an email to say, Hey, would it kill you to check out TanakhCast? Or even better, write a brief review at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher Smart Radio, or SoundCloud. It's a small thing, really, but it will help other people who might be interested in some Bible learning find this podcast. Or if you want to help in a bigger way, support us at Patreon. Just search for TanakhCast and pledge your shekels either on a one-time or monthly basis and receive special blessings from the Most High. I thank you in advance for that and encourage you to join us again in two weeks for episode 143 when we continue and conclude the book of Micah with chapters 4 through 7.